Hello and welcome to Paramedicast. In this first episode, we have a discussion with other paramedic students and explore their backgrounds and why they chose to study paramedic science. We hope you enjoy it. Rachel, you have previously undergone a degree in psychology and you have worked as a mental health support worker. Can you tell us a little bit more about that role and your previous background? Yeah, sure. So, well, I did, yeah. I, I knew I always wanted to work in healthcare for the NHS. Um, and when I was 18, I could decide what degree I wanted to do. I wasn't sure. Again, like in year, I looked at looked at nurses, looked at midwifery, looked at all sorts. Settled on psychology because I figured I could do that. And then there's, it's not qualification specific. There's loads of different places I could take it from there. So I did that. And then I thought maybe I'd like to work in mental health. So I got a job as a support worker uh, working in a mental health hospital. Um, really, just really good to get an idea of how that system works, um, but also how the NHS works as well. Um, and from that, I realised I maybe didn't want to focus so much on the mental health. Like I didn't, I enjoyed doing that. I was also really interested in all the physical health stuff as well. So throughout the few years when I was working there, I kept going round and round in my head, like must have been different options. And one thing that kept coming up was maybe I'd really enjoy being a paramedic. Um, so yeah, I started looking into that, thought maybe I could join as an ECA and work my way up. But then the pandemic hit, so they weren't recruiting and this course came up. And considering, you know, your prior experience with mental health, when you go to jobs that involve mental health, you found that that helpful? Do you feel like you manage it differently to maybe some of your peers? I'm not an expert or anything like that. Like a lot of the guys in the course, they have just as much ability as I do. But certainly thinking about my progression from when I started working in the mental health hospitals, where I am now, like I'm so much more resilient. I get a lot less upset, you know, like just if somebody says something mean to you or is aggressive towards you or something like that, like, you learn how to deal with it and once you've had that experience, I don't want to say you get used to it because it's never nice, but you do learn how to cope with it better. Um, so yeah, I have to say definitely my confidence in that respect, my resilience and the ability to deal with it has really, really helped. So I know that whenever a patient, I come across a patient that might be a little bit aggressive, I'm not going to get so frightened by that. And again, having experience specifically with mental health, all the different conditions is quite good because there are specific ways, things that you can do, say, when you're interacting with someone that's schizophrenic or that's depressed, like things that are good to say. Have you got any specific advice or golden nuggets that you'd like to share? I thought you could do a whole lecture on this. <laughs> uh, one thing I want to say, yeah, if you come across somebody that's suicidal or even that wants to self-harm, one thing I want to say is that to not be too frightened about being really direct about it. Like, if someone is saying to you they want to kill themselves, even if they're threatening to do it, just speak to them directly about it. Don't be around the bush. Like, it's such a taboo subject in society that we feel like we, we have to use language that hints at it, but isn't directly addressing it. There's nothing, you know, you do need to directly address it. You're not going to 
but the idea into someone's head by using that language, yeah. like if it's there, it's there. You say to someone, I think about killing yourself. If they have thought about it, they'll say yes. If they haven't, they'll just say no. And, you know, you're not going to you're not going to give them that idea yeah. if that makes sense. So don't be frightened of being that direct. The IPAP suicide assessment rule is basically it stands for intent, plan, action, and protective measures. And it's it's basically just you know a bit of a summary of basically gathering all the information you need to identify what risk this person is. And it's not a risk assessment to us such. And I know I think the nice guidelines actually state that we shouldn't be risk assessing these patients in this way. But it's a useful tool to be able to ask the right questions in that moment to gather all the information. For example, with intent, you need to explore how are they self-harmed or how are they planning on self-harming the frequency, et cetera, and how much they've actually thought about this. And it's very difficult to communicate to these patients or ask the right questions or know what to ask. This little tool is, is quite a nice little guide, but I was just curious to see if you've ever come across this before. Well, I must say I haven't intent in particular. It's so easy for a patient to turn around to you and say they want to kill themselves. You can tell whether they're just saying it or whether you actually do think they're going to follow through with it and... If you've ever interacted with a patient, like you can, you can tell the difference. And actually, can I speak about a little experience that I had on paramedic placement, which I found quite frustrating coming from a mental health background. So yeah, we went to a man who was with his carers and he was threatening to kill himself. So we went and we assessed him. And to me, being used to speaking to people about that kind of subject, I was like, I hear what this guy's saying, but he's got absolutely, like, there's no intent behind this. And I found it really frustrating because that, so like you said, it's, as paramedics, it's not within our scope of practice to assess that and make a call about that. You know, we can't say this person doesn't have intent. All we can do is effectively convey them to hospital. So, you know, my mentor was on the phone to the psychiatric nurses to get kind of there from it and I'm there going like I really don't believe this guy's intent the nurses aren't there on scene view so they can't make that call either so at the end of the day you don't have any other choice other than to convey to hospital and I, I did find that quite difficult you know in terms of working within your sort of practice within the particular role that you're yeah. in and Sophie I'm sure you've had that with your physio stuff so, mm. uh, as well and I'm sure the guys that the qualified nurses have mm. that as well but you really have to put your like paramedic hat on and only work within your skin yeah. in that moment yeah. which kind of frustrates us sometimes. Can you see yourself combining your two degrees so your psychology and your paramedic degree would you be interested in that or do you kind of want to stick to the paramedic stuff from now on? Uh, I mean for now we'll just see how it goes but certainly having seen the whole mental health system now right from you know an ambulance response through to the rehab just the system is just it's not what it needs to be. An opportunity came up where I could influence some sort of change and just make the whole system a lot better. I'd definitely be passionate about getting involved in that. I graduated my BSc in 2014 and my MSc in 2016. And then, so you've been doing it for 
seven years. I was going to ask you, how has that helped you with your paramedic training? There is definitely a crossover. Obviously, physiotherapists are registered HCPC professionals and you know we have a good understanding of the standards proficiency etc but I think with physiotherapy it's given me a good grounding in terms of the anatomy and physiology knowledge it just helped with understanding pathophysiology in certain conditions I've had a lot of clinical experience face-to-face contact with patients assessing patients gaining subjective history of patients and then going into objective assessments I've got, I guess you could say, a uh, background in sport and exercise medicine, and that's been really beneficial when we go to see any MSK-related injuries, you know, just assessing them in general. Having that sort of clinical knowledge has been quite useful, actually, or when we need to educate someone. I've previously done quite a few courses in pre-hospital immediate care and sport, so that's given me a bit of it. Yeah, so just the pitch side trauma experience. It's helped when we've had trauma scenarios. We haven't really had a true trauma case on placement at the moment, but I do believe that will help. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you, do you feel much more comfortable with trauma than medical? I think I do, to be honest, because I think the medical side is still quite new. You know, when we go out on placement, we see a lot of medical presentations because I guess you could say I've always dealt with a relatively fit, healthy adult going to medical issues is probably where I'm weakest whereas going to or having trauma scenarios it's where I've got a lot more training and experience it makes a lot more sense to me in terms of the primary survey the secondary yeah. survey you can work through uh, a very systematic approach to it I do I do feel more comfortable actually with trauma and as a physio what do you have in terms of drugs as a physiotherapist, we cannot prescribe. However, the role has changed. So um, physiotherapists can actually undertake further training uh, as a specialist to be able to prescribe. So something like TXA, would you be able to give that on the rugby pitch or not? No, that wouldn't be our role, but that would be the doctor's role. So right. covering pitch side, it's a multidisciplinary team. And we have pitch like doctor, we'll have our SNC coaches, we'll have usually have two physios and we'll have sports therapists and we'll have an independent match day doctor. And we would have obviously the opposition's team as well. And you know, if there's any big incident on trauma and field, everyone comes together. We've all done the same training. So we all have the same approach. Everyone understands the management plan. We always go, go through the emergency action plan pre-game. So it's relatively seamless in most cases. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds really slick. Yeah, and and I guess with travelling with a team or going to these different stadiums, yes, they're unfamiliar environments, but most of the the stadiums are are the same concept. They'll have an emergency medical room, they'll have their extrication points, they'll have paramedics that are covering the game, Uh, they'll all have doctors, they'll all have full set of drugs, equipment, so to be honest, it, it is sort of well-structured and well-organised well should any worst-case scenario happen. How do you personally feel about going from working in this multidisciplinary team with doctors to being on an ambulance where you're, it's you, one other person, and you're the mm. more qualified senior clinician? I'm very aware that paramedics do have a lot of responsibility. You know, it's we go to such different environments, um, you know, so diverse. 
they're often quite challenging environments it's often just you and the emergency care assistant making those clinical decisions and you've got to make quick decisions you don't often have your you know people at the end of the phone just be able to call and ask an opinion on I'm very aware that in sport it's a luxury you have you know just the doctor and then the phone you've got your consultants you've got sports science department you've got your strength and conditioning team which you can speak to and again in sport I, I did utilize that multidisciplinary team to get the answers I think it's a good approach to have I think just being lots of people you get a real mixed opinion to make and formalize a decision on something I think it's very different in the paramedic world where you have to make that decision based on the clinical knowledge and the clinical reasoning that you've come to it might not always be the best decision but you have to be able to justify that decision you can obviously speak to supervisors on the phone you can obviously speak to patients gps but you often are making those decisions i guess in isolation mm. so there is a lot more responsibility for sure so you have to be very i guess very sure in your decision and be able to justify it well i reckon on my first day in nqp i'm going to be like 50 percent excited 50 percent <laughs> yeah, maybe more like 10 percent like definitely So my name is Rupert, I'm a student paramedic now. Before I became a student paramedic, I climbed trees. I was an arborist for six or seven years, something like that. And then I did about a year on PTS. And then I decided to become a student paramedic. So an arborist is um, like a tree surgeon, but a tree surgeon really. Okay. Um, but arborists are like the professional quality tree surgeons because I was a good contract yeah. climber. Okay. Okay, so we've got quality. Quality tree climber. I think tree surgery is just the best job title ever. It's glorious, isn't it? I once went to France and um all my French friends were like, Oh, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm a tree surgeon. They were like a vet for trees, and I was like, not really. <laughs> PTS stands for patient transport service. You take patients that have like severe mobility problems to just their normal hospital appointments or outpatient appointments. You deal with palliative care patients. And it's quite interesting. It's quite a steady pace of life, but it's a good introduction to the ambulance service. And I'm glad I did it. But if I hadn't applied for it, I wouldn't have ended up doing, getting the interest in the ambulance service, getting the interest in becoming a student paramedic. And now, and, and subsequently end up where I, where I am now. Can I ask, what is it about the PTS or what you saw in PTS that made you want to join and enroll into the paramedic science course? PTS is quite steady and you work alongside A&E, so the, accident, so the emergency ambulances and then there's PTS ambulances and they do a very different role but you, you're based at the same stations and you, you mix with the, the A&E guys and the paramedics and so you get, you get an insight into that side of it and that's where my interest was born from. I think I have that inquisitive uh, nature about me and I'm interested in always sort of moving forward and doing new things. And so I, I was really curious. And after I'd been doing PTS for a few months, an email came around through YAS saying, we're looking for PTS guys to support A&E through COVID. So you do something called LAT, which is low acuity transport. And so I just volunteered for that straight away because I just wanted, I wanted to see a bit more of the A&E side and see if it was for me and see if it was 
somewhere that I wanted to go because I was at sort of a bit of a crossroads in my life. I'd not really sure where I wanted to go. And um, these PTS shifts and the shifts I was doing on a and were a really good insight. And I was like, this is great. I, like, I really want to go down that route and decided that the paramedic route through university was the best one for me as opposed to the apprenticeship through the ECA AAP route. How are PTS and LAT different? So I've heard of LAT. I know I've met some LAT crews. I don't think I've met PTS um, crews. And my second question was, how is how is that job different from being on the ambulance? So LAT and PTS are different in the sense that, well, they're really similar. Recently, they, I think JASA decided that LAT crews will do some PTS jobs and PTS will do some LAT jobs just to sort of help each other out. It's a more efficient way of working. So they're fundamentally the same, same kind of thing. Black crews are usually manned by two ECAs. PTS ambulances are usually crewed by um, ambulance care assistants. They're both band three, but they get different training um, and that kind of thing. But the idea is that it's just low acuity transport, little journeys to um, appointments, but the people that need the journeys have got mobility issues, like sometimes really severe mobility issues. So starting out with PTS, you learn, like you were moving and handling. You get all the specialist kit to get like these motorized chair things that descend stairs, go upstairs, go downstairs. Really cool, and it, it's, it's a good foundation. To yeah, start I was going to ask you, do you think um, if you wish you'd applied straight away as a paramedic? No, I don't wish I'd applied straight away as a paramedic. I really enjoy what I'm doing now, and I think for me at this point in my life as a 31 year old, I think it's it's great. If I was like, if I'd gone to done my first degree in paramedic science, aged and come out aged 21 or 22, I was so immature. There's no way I would have been an effective member of staff. Right. Even at like 25, 26, I was far too busy, far too, probably still too immature on loads of levels, emotionally, probably just emotionally immature. <laughs> but, um, PTS. And getting experience through that and seeing that the A&E side was a great way to make an informed decision and decide that this is something that I want to do. It is something that I enjoy. I am out and about. You're sort of your own boss yeah. in a kind of way. You're working in little teams with other people. There's a social side to it. The work matters. I think it's really rewarding. So yeah, I'm glad that I did the way I did it. So Poppy, I'm interested to know about your background and why you chose to become a paramedic. I did a degree in biology back in 2012 and then I didn't really know what to do. I enjoyed my degree so I just kind of carried on. I thought the natural progression was to go do lab work. So I worked, I did a master's in London and I worked in a lab for a year and I, I did enjoy it. I wouldn't say I was massively passionate about it but again I didn't really know what I was passionate about. I think that's probably true of lots of people in their early 20s. So what I did was I applied for a PhD because I thought that was that would kind of further my career if I was going to stick in that field. I moved up to Manchester and I started my PhD in 2017 and pretty much straight away I, I struggled to motivate myself. Um, for people that don't know, a PhD involves planning experiments, carrying them out and then analysing the data and then doing lots of writing up. That's the kind of general process. What I didn't realise was just quite how meticulous and repetitive the work would be. So because obviously you're studying something which no one else has studied before, it involves a huge amount of trial and error. So in my experience, I mean, I wasn't a very good student, but it's like nine out of 10 experiments wouldn't work. And 
it's your job to work out why they haven't worked. And when I say they haven't worked, I mean, you, you do them for like three days, you set it up, you do it. And for whatever reason, you get no results. So you can't even really use those results. So I just found it very demoralizing. I don't have that type of personality that's like very, very meticulous. So I wasn't happy. I sort of started looking elsewhere. And then a year later, after a year of doing that and kind of trying to trudge through it, I started looking for volunteer work. So that's when I joined a mountain rescue team in 2018. And straight away, I absolutely loved it. I loved the medical training, especially. Um, loved the people. It was just, I've always been quite outdoorsy and loved walking. So it's like getting out in those kind of adverse environments, getting out in the dark, in the winter, all of that. I absolutely just loved it, loved the challenge. So I kind of started thinking like, oh, I wonder if I could do this for a job. All mountain rescue in the UK is volunteer based. So yeah, that was when I sort of started looking at paramedic courses. I got to the end of my PhD and um, started training as a paramedic. Yeah, in, in January this year. And I've loved it. It's very exciting. It's, it's what I expected it to be. Amazing. The mountain rescue sounds really exciting. Obviously being a member and having all that training, do you feel that experience has helped with the paramedic training? I do, yeah, I do actually, because you use controlled drugs, so you use, you use all the same drugs in mountain rescue. There's a lot of medical training. You, you get trained in trauma and medical scenarios as well. You have to pass quite a rigorous exam called casualty care, which requires this, you know, written tests and, and um, OSCEs, so doing scenarios. From that, you know, that really helped. The one thing that I didn't have coming to into the paramedic course, which a lot of other students did, was just the face-to-face -face clinical scenarios, working in a hospital, working with patients all the time. Because in Mountain Rescue, in my experience, it was a lot of training. But in reality, in the call-outs, you get a lot of lost people. You know, you just don't get these big injury scenarios, big traumas, big medical mm -hmm. jobs. It's, it's mostly just going to find someone walking off the hill. And even then, you might be in a casualty, like a search party, which doesn't even find the casualty. It might be someone else that finds them. So you're still going on the call outs and whatever. But actually, the amount of face to face patient contact is really low. Mm -hmm. So although I had the training, yeah, I just didn't. The thing that I find really difficult is talking to patients. But I, know, I suppose it's just because of lack of practice. Mm -hmm. And with the casualty care training that you've done, do you feel like now your role has changed within the team now that you're a student paramedic? Do you help facilitate some of the casualty care training at all? No, I, I actually don't think many people know, to be honest. Because, um, you know, because of COVID, we haven't had much face-to-face -face training in the past six months since I started training as a paramedic. Now, I just want to bring you back to the biology yeah. degree and the research. Yeah. And that's quite exciting because obviously paramedic practice is becoming very more, you know, research based, evidence based practice. Do you hope to get into some of that paramedic research in the future? I would absolutely love to. Yeah, I, I know that um, there's, yeah, as you say, huge opportunities for it. Um, it's really important to have a really good understanding of how clinical trials work what evidence-based medicine actually means and why it's so important and powerful. I know that it's just incredibly difficult to set up clinical trials in practice, and especially pre-hospital environments, but I'd absolutely be interested in doing it. In biology, you have a spectrum of basic biology all the way to... So basic biology is like where you're studying kind of fundamental interactions between mm -hmm. cells and at a very basic level. And then you kind of go all the way up to like applied biology, where it's you know, therapies to be used mm. for people at like clinical trials. 
my PhD was much more down the end of basic biology. So it wasn't, I wasn't developing medicines or applying or anything like that. You know, I'm not fully prepared for that already, but it's something that I'm definitely really interested in and I'd like to get involved in. Is there any topics or things that you've seen that has caught your eye that you may like want to look into and expand on further? God, I feel like a job interview, so it's a <laughs> difficult question. Um, I mean, obviously with the College of Paramedics, I think obviously they're putting on quite a few webinars and it's interesting how much research is coming out at the moment. It's a really exciting time, isn't it? You can Yeah. Do you know what? Something that this is quite a niche thing, but something which has caught my eye. The the idea that you can use one drug to treat multiple different pathophysiology. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge benefit in that because obviously the drug's already licensed, it's already been proven to be safe. So I think potentially, yeah, like something like that where you're using existing drugs to maybe treat different things. I don't know much about it. I know it's possible, you know, you see it in jail calc. And I suppose as well for us, we're training with YAS, understanding why some drugs are excluded for YAS, which are not excluded in other in other ambulance trusts. I think it'd be cool to know a bit more about that. Definitely. And we had a chat about it the other day, didn't we, about the crossover with mountain rescue and paramedic research. Yeah. There were some interesting papers looking at Kendrick traction use. Yeah. Uh, particularly within mountain rescue. And yeah, it was just it's some qualitative data coming out of that about how many times these devices were being used, what were people's thoughts and feelings about using them, and obviously. Um, effect of using them so it is exciting isn't it I think there's a lot out there that can be explored definitely I think the tools that you use are do depend quite strongly on the context so something which is great in an ambulance context wouldn't be at all appropriate mm-hmm. in mountain rescue just because you know you ha- it has to be quite lightweight mm-hmm. you're out you, there's no electricity um you have to use it in the dark yeah. in the wind all that stuff and as well, you have to appreciate that the people who are going to be using that kit aren't medical professionals. Mm-hmm. So whereas like in our, doing our scenarios at uni, we can ask loads of questions, there's loads of ifs, buts, all of that. In mountain rescue, you more have to kind of like be a bit reductionist about it and simplify things down and try and keep the rules quite simple yeah. just so everyone can kind of understand it, follow a more simple set of rules. And yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a great approach. I'm Enya. I'm 23. And I did a degree in speech and language therapy. So I graduated last summer and knew before I graduated that speech and language therapy wasn't the career I wanted for myself. I probably knew about two years into my four-year degree that even though I enjoyed the degree, it wasn't something I could see myself being happy doing for the rest of my life. And before I went to uni originally, I always knew I wanted to work in healthcare. And so I kind of looked around when I went on uni open days. And I did look at paramedic science, but I think at 18, it just wasn't the time for me to be training to be a paramedic, just because I knew it was going to be quite an intense course. Um, And also the different sides of people's lives that you're exposed to. I just didn't think that would be something that I was ready to deal with so young. So I settled on speech and language therapy. I always much more preferred the academic side uh, like the medical side of speech and language therapy rather than like the English side of it it was my final year I think I'd had a bad experience on my speech and language therapy placements I think that was just 
the final straw. So I think I just got, I got to a point where I was like, I've done this degree now for four years, I'll just do it as a job. But I just had a bad experience on placement and that was the final straw for me. I was like, no, I really want to be a paramedic. I'm not just going to settle doing something that I don't think I'll be happy doing. And then I stumbled across the Masters by accident. So I was going to look, I was looking on UPASS for a BSc for me to do and then stumbled across the Masters by accident and realised that that would be a much better fit in, in terms of just personal progression. I think it was more of a psychological thing. I didn't really want to be going back and doing another BSc. I want to know how, how you find in the course. And I wondered if the SALT background has actually helped with any of the patients that you're going to see. It's more intense than I thought it was going to be. But I think that's probably just my own naivety. Emotionally or sort of workload-wise? Workload-wise. I think emotionally that you do see some distressing things. But I feel like at the minute I've not been exposed to anything that I've been able to cope with. I think it's more workload as being on placement and I've been working part-time and doing assignments all at once has just been a bit more than I expected it to be. I thought it'd be a bit easier to cope with. I think definitely like stroke patients. I think it's more just something that I'm aware of, something like the fast tool, because it says speech. Yeah. Um, and just because of my career in speech and language, there is obviously a distinction between the two. And I think sometimes I think they kind of get muddled into one and I don't know if that sometimes these things being misinterpreted wrong or things being missed out so if someone's like not understanding language I don't know sometimes that's just forgotten is that is a symptom of stroke that is like a language deficit and not speech deficit so I think that's, that's just something that I've been aware of obviously the past also speech but language disorders are also symptoms of stroke um, and I'm finding that they're either all getting bundled into one Sometimes they're just getting forgotten about. Are you glad that you chose this course then? Yeah, I'm really happy. So you feel like your doctor's telling you that this is the right yeah, course? I think, I think I always probably knew. I just wasn't ready at when I was going to uni the first time. I'm glad I didn't do it when I was 18 because I just don't think I was too young. I, mean, I don't think I'd have enough life experience. I hadn't really experienced anything like moving away to go to uni. like it gives you a bit more so I think I've grown up quite a lot since I started uni um, so I'm definitely and now I'm doing the right thing and all my friends are speech and language therapists and they'll talk about what they're doing at work and stuff and I'm so glad I'm quite happy for them that they're enjoying it that's but a good time but I'm, I'm, like, I'm so glad that's not me yeah but I do yeah I'm really glad I decided to I think it's really interesting you said that about that you wouldn't have been ready to do it at age 18 because yeah. obviously there are a lot of paramedic students who are going into it at that young age I would say that you're one of the younger ones in our course. Yeah, I think, I think, I don't know if there's anyone else. You're all doing on the Rachel. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I mean, Rupert was saying the other day that he wouldn't be ready to do it when he was in his early yeah. 20s. Yeah. He's now, what, 31? So. Mm. I, I agree. I think myself as well, doing this course, I would have struggled going into this just coming out of college. So, yeah, it's interesting we all have the same opinion. This podcast is supported by Class Professional Publishing and sponsored by World Extreme Medicine.